0: Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am joined by a wonderful group of actors that are going to lead us through act two of King Henry IV, part one. We started the play in our last episode. We went through act one where we jumped from the private council chambers of the king to a tavern in Eastcheap to the throne room where a rebellion was um, started to be planned. Um, and this is maybe one of my favorite transitions in all of Shakespeare. We go from the throne room to basically the modern day equivalent of a truck stop, which is to me just like an awesome transition. Um, This is one of the most frequently cut scenes in all of Shakespeare, the scene that we're about to read, uh, act two, scene one. It's one of my favorites and the great 20th century theater critic Bernard Levin, said about this scene, if you cut this scene, you rob the Gads Hill robbery of its midnight freshness, which I just love. I think that's just what, how sweet. Um, so I agree with Mr. Levin, and uh, I I think that this play gives us such an encyclopedic look at the world um, that of this play, as opposed to, for example, Richard II, which very much concentrates on just the nobles with the exception of the gardener um who also speaks in verse uh in act three but this is this play bounces between verse and prose a lot more than some of the other history plays and um we get such an incredible detailed vision of what life uh was like from from this first bit so let's Without further ado, let us introduce some of my favorite characters in the entire canon. The Carriers! <laughs> um, and let's go from the top of Act 2, Scene 1. Hey
1: ho, and it be not four by the day I'll be hanged. Charles's wane is over the new chimney, and yet our horse is not packed. What, Osler? Anon! Anon! I prithee, Tom. Beat cut saddle, put a few flocks in the point. Poor Jade is... Rung in the withers, out of all cess.
2: Bees and beans are as dank here as a dog, and that is the next way to give poor jades the bots. This house is turned upside down since Robin Osler died. Poor fellow
1: never joyed since the price of death of him.
2: I think this be the most villainous house in all London road for fleas. I am stung like a tench. Like a tench,
1: by the mass there's ne'er a king Christian could be better bit than I have been since the first cock.
2: Why, they will allow us ne'er a Jordan, and then we leak in your chimney, and your chamberlain breeds fleas like a loach.
1: What, ostler? Come away and be hanged, come away.
2: I have a gammon of bacon and two raises of ginger to be delivered as far as Charm Cross.
1: God's body, the turkeys in my pannier are quite starved. What, ostler? A plague on thee, hast thou never an eye in thy head, canst not hear, and twere not as good deed as drink to break the pate on thee, I am a very villain. Come and be hanged, hast no faith in thee.
0: Okay, let's pause for just a second, cause there's a lot of very archaic language there to unpack. Wonderful. So just a few things. So Charles Wayne is um, is a constellation. It was sort of the, known as the Wagon of Charlemagne. Um, and it's really Ursa Major, what we now know of as Ursa Major. So cuts was, and jades are both names of like very worn out horses. So cut saddle would be this, this old worn out horse's saddle. Put a few flocks in the point. Um, it's sort of saying put put some wool in the in the pommel and this the poor worn out horse is uh is bruised essentially is wrung in the withers out of all cess is bruised in the withers which would be the ridge between the shoulder blades um out of all sort of estimation so these poor you get this you know it's like a broken down semi truck like these are just very broken down horses they're 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 very um they've seen some days um and then we have this peas and beans are dank meaning sort of damp and moldy um, and that's the most direct way to give these these poor horses the bots which was this stomach worm that affected horses <laughs> so we're living in like a very decaying <laughs> not healthy environment. I think with, with all of this, I just wanted, so tench was, was a freshwater fish that had these, these red spots on its skin. And I love the first carrier's line. There's not a king in Christendom could be better bit than I have been sort of essentially saying I am more flea bitten than a king. (laughs) Like, which to me is like, what a great, what a great image. Um, Let me see if there is. So a Jordan was a chamber pot. So this inn, they don't give people toilets, and so they have to piss in the chimney, which then breeds Uh, more fleas, uh, like uh, a a loach, which is another type of small fish. Um, A gammon of bacon is the sort of ham or the haunch of a pig, and the race of ginger would be the roots of ginger. Um, And then, yeah, let's see. The, the pate is the the skull or the head so what are our sort of impressions of the uh Alex uh, tell me about this this uh this first carrier as opposed to for example Northumberland
1: mm-hmm. well it's interesting to me that the carrier's language feels more archaic to our ear like they have I think it actually reflects A high level of specialization, you know, and detail in what they're doing. So we get this whole sense of like the texture of their lives in a different way, and their kind of like expertise, and to the point of annoyance (laughs) with (laughs) what they're doing. Yeah, it's really like beautiful texture to feel in the mouth. I think
0: Um, absolutely. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, and, and you just get the sense that these you know these people didn't have very good health care, um, to put it mildly. Um, and they,
2: they had a lot of diseases to deal with. Did you have something, Dee, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, what I was thinking is that as unusual and peculiar as this language is, um, I would imagine that those folks in the pit would have been able to really identify with these two characters not because of their class necessarily although that's true but their experience is probably very much like those folks in the pit absolutely <laughs> yeah so I, you know they're really able to identify with these lower class characters so it it, it it i can imagine how how really involved they would have been with this particular short scene at this absolutely. moment absolutely sam
3: um, I think it's really interesting because with a line like, uh, I prithee, Tom, beat cut saddle, put a few flocks in the point, actually is like rare Shakespearean naturalism. Yeah. Like, right? That could probably be a thing that you would actually hear at a station. Like right.
2: That. It seems
3: yeah. like a real command in a way that doesn't seem um, heightened like we normally think of Shakespeare. Very familiar. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, because I I don't know this, but does I don't remember like Ben Johnson or any of the other writers of their time, like, really going into the detail of what common people are doing. Like, I, I am struck at the top of this, Ari, after you explained what everything means, how natural this scene actually seems in its yeah. time period of people who are doing what they're doing, doing what they do, and I can't think of like, I, I know that Webster never does anything like this in any of his plays. So I'm, I'm wondering if any of like, you know, the wits and the actual literary men of their time, as opposed to Shakespeare, spent time putting in such natural things into their plays.
2: Sam, if I can, if I can just respond quickly to that. In Bartholomew Fair, Johnson does really appeal and reveal these kinds of characters, many, many characters speak similarly okay, so in a particular yeah. play.
3: Yeah, I don't know Ben Johnson's very well, but I've always struck by um, sometimes yeah. Shakespeare's care with the mechanicals that I, or, or, or lower working class characters that other writers of the time period sometimes yes. seem as into.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Lynn. I think it's also such a beautiful scene about how the natural world is is so physically um, affecting the characters, and the, as if they're almost at war with that natural wor- world, with the fleas yeah. and the decay and the, this, you know, the for survival versus, you know, juxtaposed with the with the king's, you know, the dilemmas of the king, and and it's um, it's it's kind of a mano a mano there versus the man with nature in this scene.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's that's a wonderful point. That in in Shakespeare's time, uh, disturbances in nature were seen as being reflective of disturbances in the 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 order of the kingdom. So that there was an sure. intrinsic uh, connection between if you know if there's a big storm, you see this a lot in Shakespeare. It's usually reflective that something horrible is happening to the kingdom. You get mm-hmm. this in Macbeth with the horses eating each other <laughs> after Duncan is killed. Um, which is an extraordinary, like very big jump. But then also you get that in in Julius Caesar, right before they kill Caesar. You know the heavens are all um, on fire. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as uh, as we will hear from Glendower, the heavens were on fire when he was born. You know, so he he's uh, <laughs> he's uh, very connected to the to the natural um, order of things. Yes, quite.
5: I just, well, I really like how the more that we f- get away from these moments historically, this becomes really, really hard to understand because mm. we're out of the moment. But it also, it it reminds me of of science fiction because whether it's so far in the past that we don't remember it or whether we're making it up, you know, you go to to Star Wars when he says, "I'm going to Tosh Station to pick up some power converters," <laughs> and it's this arbitrary statement. What the loveliness about this is, even if the audience doesn't understand exactly what's being said, it's the the, the style of, of who's living and the kind of the lifestyles can be very clear, even if the specific nouns are totally arbitrary.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, Andrew.
6: I just wanted to say that your comparison to a truck stop is really apt, be- maybe because of that, Koi, what you were just saying, um, that this feels like a conversation you could overhear uh, in the very early morning hours at a truck stop and and that as you say is kind of timeless that conversation that you have that you might have in such a place at such a time uh even though we don't understand the particular words that they're using to describe that situation
0: yeah absolutely um right yeah like uh, oh sorry go ahead alex
1: oh no just that that that's helpful it's like uh I also, in this day and age, I'm not particularly familiar with how you might repair a rundown car. So the kind of vocabulary around that would also be a bit beyond me, but kind of um, reflects like this, this intimacy with the workings of transportation and um, yeah, kind of the the ins and outs of the mechanics of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes, Sam.
3: I just also am tickled by as 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 different as it feels and as alien as it feels, uh, but also as familiar as it feels, there's still just this, especially being in like a time of crisis in the world right now, just poor fellow never joined since the price of oats rose. <laughs> it was the death of him is just like maybe one of the more universal like statements on being a working person, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that their their livelihood is completely tied to the trade of goods and services and and mm. how they can be affected
2: by that. Yeah, D. Yeah, I just wanted to say isn't isn't the plague rampant at this particular time in England? So it seems to me to be a reflection of that kind of ill health to the body. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think there was a, a a very bad three or four year theater shutdown plague yeah. in the. I want to say the early to mid 1590s, probably around yeah. the time when this was written. So yeah,
2: that's what people thought, were yeah.
0: probably coming out of the plague a couple yeah. years of the plague after, um, when this was first being performed, yeah. um, which is always, you know, it's, uh, I, I find it, I, I think a lot of us have been very concerned about our, our industry and the sort of the way in which, um, you know how is theater ever going to recover but i i was um I went to this uh online Q&A with James Shapiro who wrote this wonderful book recently Shakespeare in a Divided America highly recommend it i read it in like a day it's fascinating um but i uh he was saying you know if we can take something from it that after all of these times of plague during Shakespeare's time it was always followed by huge numbers of people rushing back into the theater as soon as like people want Essentially, he was saying it's not as hopeless as we think it is, which was comforting. Yeah, it's (laughs) Um, true. In a sense. Um, Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. So uh, then enter Gad's Hill. And um, uh, I I, I entitled this little interaction, Gad's Hill tries to get information and a lantern. So let's see (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um,
0: what... What what happens there? Um, so, uh, D. So I think uh, Brittany will take over the the second carrier. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Good morrow, carriers. What's the o'clock?
1: I think it be two o'clock.
5: I pray thee, uh, lend me thy lantern to see my gelding in the stable.
1: Nay, by God, soft! I know a trick worth two of that, a faith.
5: I pray thee, lend me thine.
1: Hi, when, canst tell? Lend me thy lantern, quoth he.
7: Mary, I'll see thee hanged first.
5: Sarah Carrier, what time do you mean to come to London?
7: Time enough to go to bed with a candle, I warrant thee. Come, neighbor mugs, we'll call up the gentlemen. They will along with company, for they have great charge.
0: So
5: I just oh. want
0: to, I just pause here and say that the the two o'clock, you started the scene by saying it's four o'clock, so you're deliberately giving him the wrong time, which is just a fun thing Uh, for me that you're like definitely trying to give him false information um because this guy like anyone sort of hanging out (laughs) and not a carrier it's like clearly trying to get something and clearly these guys were robbed frequently um so Mm -hmm. that's that's something that they they had to contend with uh but i just love that like you start the day with, oh, man, it's 4 a.m. And as soon as he asks you what time it is, you're like, I think it's 2. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's just a really fun little um, thing. And then soft, I had always, um, I actually looked this up because it's something that appears in Shakespeare a lot. Somebody said soft. And I, I, I don't, I realized that I didn't actually know what it means. And it essentially was was short for not so fast, um, which is kind of a, a smushing of not so fast and soft. Um it's a way of saying "hang on, hold up," uh-uh. and like
8: quiet, right? Be soft. Like it's got this sense of like, "whoa, whoa there, stop
2: talking." Yeah, yeah. Whoa there, right? exactly. Go like, easy. Hold, hold on. <laughs> yeah.
4: Hold up. Yeah.
0: Um, I also just love these names. Like I love the name, the the idea that the first carrier's name is Mugs, which is just like a little bit. Again, like <laughs> we just need to turn them into Mugsy, and we've got like a a nineteen forties movie on our hands. It's great. Um, So obviously Gadsill not terribly successful at getting this information from these people. Um, And then enters, and then we're going to have, where is the Chamberlain? And then one of my favorite uh, sort of strange constructions, we ain't no mad mustachio purple-heeled maltworm thieves. Um, So let's get into that with uh, uh, the entrance of a new character. This is a Chamberlain who works for this, um, flea bitten inn, which the carriers have just been staying at.
5: What ho, Chamberlain? At
6: hand, quoth pick purse.
5: Oh, that's even as fair as at hand, quoth the Chamberlain. For thou variest no more from picking of purses than giving direction doth from laboring. Thou layest the plot. How? Good morrow, Mr. Gadsill. It
6: holds current that I told you yesterday night. There's a Franklin, in the weald of Kent, hath brought three hundred marks with him in gold. I heard him tell it to one of his company last night at supper, a, a kind of auditor, one that hath abundance of charge, too, God knows what. They are up already and call for eggs and butter. They will away presently.
5: Sirrah, if they meet not with St. Nicholas's clerks, I'll give thee this neck. No, none of it.
6: I pray thee, keep that for the hangman, for I know thou worshipest St. Nicholas as truly as a man of falsehood may.
5: What talkest thou to me of the hangman? If I hang, I'll make a fat pair of gallows, for if I hang, old Sir John hangs with me, and thou knowest he is no starveling. Tut, there are... Other Trojans that thou dreamst not of, the which for sport's sake are content to do the profession some grace that would, if matters should be looked into, for their own credit's sake, make all whole. I am joined with no foot landrakers, no long staffed sixpenny strikers, none of these mad mustachio purple hued maltworms, but with nobility and tranquility, burgomasters and great one-ears, such as can hold in, such as will strike soon, sooner than they speak, and speak sooner than drink, and drink sooner than pray, and yet zounds I like particularly to their saint the commonwealth, or rather, not pray to her, but pray on her, for they ride up and down on her, and make her their boots.
6: What? The commonwealth their boots? Will she hold out water
5: in foul way? Well, she will, she will. Justice hath liquored her. We steal as in a castle, cocksure. We have the recipe of fern seed. We walk invisible. Nay, by
6: my faith, I think you are more beholding to the night than to fern seed for your walking invisible.
5: Give me thy hand, thou shalt have a share in our purchase, as I am a true man nay rather let me have it as you are a false thief go to homo is a common name to all men bid the ostler bring my gelding out of the stable farewell you muddy knave
0: (laughs) great thank you guys i love this little section um i just wanted to to uh, explain again some of the some of the language um because i think it it aids with with the understanding so uh Uh, a Franklin is like a rich landowner
5: Mm.
0: so this there's a Kentish gentleman with uh, who's who's coming in and he was he was talking last night at supper to this auditor which would be um, an official of the royal exchequer um, at charge here I think it pretty obviously means uh, money Um, and then let's see so Saint Nicholas was the patron saint of of travelers and scholars so there's a fun little bit about and I think perhaps thieves I could be wrong about that um and then this all of these strange the 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 Trojans just mean like good drinking companions (laughs) merry fellows um uh the footland rakers would be like the highwaymen on foot like stand and deliver essentially what Gad's Hill is and what most of the the thieves are um long staff uh, for those of you who've taken stage combat is like a quarter staff Um, and then six penny strikers. So these are, again, this is just like very poor um, petty highwaymen or robbers. And then my personal favorite mad mustachio purple, purple hued malt worms. (laughs) This really means like, okay, so wild mustachioed purple face because they drink a lot. And then malt worms uh, meaning a drinker, a, Devoted drinker of malt liquor. So I think we should all, you know, malt worms. I love it. Um, and then nobility and tranquilo, the burgomasters, uh, borough masters. So this would be a very like low level uh, government position. And mm-hmm. one year's would be like the public crier who cries like, hear ye, hear ye. And then hold in, meaning here, like keep silence and keep secrets. Uh, and uh, Zunes, was it a very mild oath, meaning uh, God's wounds, just like splod, uh, which both of these appear over and over was a mild oath, meaning like God's blood. And then this wonderful play of boots and boots, boots in the first sense, right up and down on her and make her their boots uh, means booty, like all of the not, not booty booty, but like uh, treasure right? Um, and then the second one, the Commonwealth, their boots um, is literally about shoes. <laughs> and then we have another, of which we got in our, in the first line, bootless, meaning sort of pointless. So there's three different kind of connotations of boots and two of them are used here. Yeah, that's, that's about it. So, so tell me, Koi and Andrew, what were your impressions of these, these characters and, and sort of the, the world that they live in? <clears throat>
5: <laughs> Go for it, Andrew. Uh,
6: gosh, I—I I mean, the thing that stands out to me is the an employee of this inn uh, who is, I think, in the habit of passing info on to various thieves, and the the world of uh, larceny that that suggests. Just that the there's a guy here who takes care of the, uh, I guess, the bedrooms of the inn. Um, who, if you give him a little cut on the side, he'll just give you all this information about who's got the treasure and who's, who's going where and all this stuff. Just the whole idea of this, and then you think, well, there's probably like dozens of these inns along the highway, right? And dozens of these guys, one in every place, who's, who's got the know, uh, the inside knowledge on, on who's carrying the biggest purse. It's great, it's horrible, but it's great. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, Coy. Did you have any impressions of of Gads Hill?
5: Yeah, he's a very. It's a very typical character for sure, right? It's the kind of um, who am I thinking of? The artful Dodger almost. Yeah. Uh, is like a bigger version of this guy, I suppose. Um, yeah, just kind of like the local ruffian. Mm. Um, it's it's embarrassing, but it makes me realize how much uh, having a nice warm up is for Shakespeare. <laughs> it's like all right these are long thoughts and it's good to you really feel it when you're when you're ready and when when you're tired yeah uh...
0: I love that. Um, I, I'm a I'm a very big uh, proponent of uh, of voice warm up. So love that you're saying that.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, yeah, I, I I I love this. I love this seat. I also think that so this is the most that Gads Hill speaks in the play, and I think we really get a sense of he's kind of. I remember the way I, the way I cast him last summer and the way we sort of thought, he was sort of the most romantic of the thieves, just because he kind of has this, like, this very, like, over the top way of speaking in this scene of just like, sort of, I I sort of cast him as sort of like this Robin Hood type, but he steals from the rich, but he just never got really around to giving to the poor. He just kept it for himself, because he's like, hey, I'm poor, you know, so I, I I do love this idea that he's kind of a, a romantic figure and um, we actually heard about him in the first scene with Falstaff and Hal when when Poins enters I think that that bit about like uh, Falstaff has about you know the most um, ridiculous villain that ever cried stand to a true man is actually not about Poins, but about Gads Hill which makes it a little bit confusing but I, I, I think he's the the setter as we'll we'll learn this this term in the next he's the one who sets up the robbery and then kind of All staff and the other guys show up and they they do it and also his name Gads Hill comes from the place where he tends to rob people because this is we're about to see the robbery at Gads Hill so he's just like taken on the name of the place where he commits his his crimes which is I think kind of delightful so we're, we're we're all set up now for this for this robbery and then we're we're also of course set up for the jest within the robbery or So, but before that, we have this wonderful little mini jest where uh, Poins, who I think is just like his life is about making Falstaff's life more difficult. (laughs) Um, And Poins has uh, taken Falstaff's horse and hid it from him. And as we'll learn in Falstaff's amazing speech that is to come, he really dislikes walking. Not a big hiker, this one. So um, (laughs) we'll see (laughs) this little mini jest before the big jest as this happens. So we just had the, the Chamberlain and Gad's Hill talking and sort of confirming the details about these people that they're gonna rob, the Chamberlain's gonna get a cut. And then we transfer, I, I think this is probably like an hour later at Gad's Hill where the robbers are supposed to meet up right before they rob the, rob the, the true men. Um, so here we have uh, Poins and Prince Hal followed shortly by Falstaff.
1: Come shelter, shelter. I have removed Falstaff's horse, and he frets
2: like a gummed velvet. Stand close. Poins! Poins and be hanged! Poins! Peace, ye
3: fat kidneyed rascal! Yeah. What a brawling dost thou keep! Where's
2: points, Hal? He's walking up to the top of the hill. I'll go seek him. I am accursed to rob in that thief's company. The rascal hath removed my horse and tied him, I know not where. If I travel but four foot by the squire further afoot, I shall break my wind. Well, I doubt not but to die a fair death for all of this. If I escape hanging for killing that rogue, I have forsworn his company hourly, any time this two and twenty years, and yet I am bewitched with the rogue's company. If the rascal have not given me medicines to make me love him, I'll be hanged. It could not be else. I have drunk medicines. Coins. Hell! The plague upon you both. Bartolfito! I'll starve, ere I'll rob a foot further. And t'were not as good a deed as drink to turn true men and to leave these rogues. I am the veriest varlet that ever chewed with a tooth. Eight yards of uneven ground is threescore and ten miles of foot with me, and the stony-hearted villains know it well enough. A plague upon it when thieves cannot be true to one another. A plague upon you all. Give me my horse, you rogue. Give me my horse and be hanged. Peace, ye fat guts. Lie. Down, lay thine
3: ear close to the ground And list if thou canst hear The tread of travellers.
2: Have you any levers to lift me up again Being bound? So blood? I'll not bear mine own flesh So far afoot again For all the coin in thy father's exchequer. What a plague mean ye to cult me thus? Thou liest,
3: thou art not culted, Thou art unculted.
2: prithee Good printel, help me to my horse, good king's son.
3: Out, ye rogue, shall I be your ostler.
2: Oh, hang thyself and thy known heir apparent darkness. If I be taken, I'll preach for that, this. And I have not ballads made on you all and sung to filthy tunes. Let a cup of sack be my poison when a jest is so forward and a foot too. I hate it. Okay,
0: let's, um, let's just pause there. I love this little mini bit. Um, one, of the, one of the big questions I had, and I remember this uh, coming up from when I directed this, was that that, that, that big Falstaff speech is very confusing to me because why is he talking about poins the whole time? He doesn't actually seem to like poins that much. So the way that I kind of um, divided it was that the first half of the speech... I doubt not, up to, I doubt not but to die a fair death for all this if I escape hanging for killing that rogue is about points. And then the other half of the speech is actually about how, because he has known how. He's probably known how since he was like a baby. And um, he frequently throughout the play will comment on, oh, for a, you know, a fine thief of the age of uh, two and 20 or thereabouts, obviously indicating how. So... To me, it's like that. That speech is actually it, it. It somehow makes more sense if the if the first bit is about points and how points is always like kind of pulling the rug out from under him, and then the second bit is this sort of uh, interesting comment on his relationship with Hal.
3: Did you treat it like an aside in your production of it then? Because it feels then a little bit like an aside, right? I, I have forsworn his company. Uh, wait.
0: I had him do that to the audience and I had him actually do the first part to Hal. Yeah, like, I like, come here, let me tell you, I'm a curse to robbing that thief's company, which I just love. I love that bit that he's like, it's really hard to rob with that thief hanging about. Um, and then, and then Hal was like, oh no, I'm gonna go get him. And then, cause usually the way this is done is that Hal and Poins are hiding and Falstaff doesn't see them. So this is, could be like his sort of soliloquy. But yeah, I, I think that's, that's the way I think we, we landed on it. And I'm sure there, there are many other interpretations that, that work just as well. Um, but that was the way that sort of uh, made, made sense. I, I love this, the cult here meaning um, trick or dupe or fool why are you, why are you tricking me this way? And then, of course, colt was also the name of a young horse. And um, Hal has this wonderful, oh, no, you're not being tricked. You're just without a horse, um, uncolted." So yeah, any, any other little, uh, any other observations about this, this part? Um, Dee, is this a different Falstaff than we saw in Act One, Scene Two? Any changes?
2: Oh, I, you know, I don't know that he's necessarily different. I think this is, you know just another part of our full staff He you know mm-hmm. he keeps getting bigger and bigger and grander and grander and 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 more more consuming and of course once he starts drinking and gets very drunk and he's really pretty gargantuan but i'm i'm really <laughs> and truly literally and figuratively I'm really attracted to the to the line. If the rascal have not given me medicines to make me love him, I'll be hanged. I just I just think it's so intriguing that now he's talking about love potions, and yeah. and and that's the only way that Falstaff or yeah, that Falstaff could ever love anybody. It's because <laughs> of of these love potions, except Hal. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I loves me, but every other person, I, I, the only way I can ever love them is, is through love potion.
0: (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot.
2: Sad, sad.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also love, he was so excited for this robbery. He was like, Oh, come on. It's going to be great. And then the first we see him, he's like wheezing and panting and like,
2: I hate this shit.
0: Somebody give me a horse, you know, like it's, It's so great. I I also just love this. The the eight yards of uneven ground is 70 miles to me, which is just like the most wonderful exaggeration Yeah, um, that like eight yards equals 70 miles to me.
2: yeah and, like, yeah, and oh, when we man. get to the how many attacked him it was 15 yeah. oh it was yeah. 11 it was yeah <laughs> it was 50 yeah
0: um it's 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 marvelous the sort of we we get a, a a little taste of his sort of hyperbole here in this in this scene and we're going to get it obviously um in its in its most glorious form and in the other scene we see Falstaff in in this act um yeah, yeah, Pam, and I- yeah. oh sorry Alex go ahead Oh, no, I just,
1: I guess I've been reflecting on kind of the difference in scale between the very opening of the play and where we are here in terms of the body. And so thinking about the opening image of Christ and blood and war, but especially Christ's feet for whom the war is in some sense being fought. um, (laughs) uh, And in relation to Falstaff's feet now, um, like yes. that, that Falstaff is in a way also envisioning himself a kind of a suffering Christ sacrificial figure in this moment. And we get both a sense of his self grandiosity and, but also then a bit of like a a mockery of the opening image of kind of suffering
0: feet. <laughs> like there's these different bodily callbacks. That I love that. Um, mm-hmm. His feet suffer. <laughs> and you there was this they yes. are suffering, um, yeah. and there is an interesting. I mean, he was a, a, originally known Falstaff was originally Sir John Oldcastle, which is my old lad of the castle. We got a little bit hint of that in the first uh, scene with Hal and Falstaff, but uh, apparently, um, as we'll find out in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, the Oldcastle family had a huge issue with this, and so he kind of had to change the name. To Falstaff because they 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 were very offended by this this interpretation of their of their ancestor who was a Protestant martyr. So there's a lot of really interesting um, mixed mixing of, of a sort of parody of religious martyrdom mixed in with with Falstaff's character that was sort of written in already. So it's it's so wonderful that you picked up on that the <laughs> the feat. Sam,
3: I still think it's really interesting that. For, as, for what we've actually seen of Hal and Falstaff together, all of the love that's between the two of them has really been proclaimed by Falstaff up until this point. And the prince has just been incredibly cruel to him um, all yeah. throughout it. Like, I I, I I know that you have to undercut it with love because you keep on getting told that there's love between these two men. But, and it's just top of the scene, I'm just like, you're fat, yeah. you're fat. You, you, <laughs> you it's you actually i'm going to make a a horse pun on you now um, you know what i mean there is this this sense of love that these two men are supposed to have mm-hmm. is coming through falstaff's dialogue and hasn't yet been shown through either the prince's words or actions which i think is a little interesting that's great
0: yeah
8: mitch i have this i have this sense uh, when hal interacts with falstaff that hal is like keeping him at a certain distance Always, mm-hmm. like, that part of the cruelty is, is like... And that's maybe the way to square the circle. Because he, if he does love him and if he does have this thing... But Hal's got all this angst and knows that at a certain point he's going to have to leave. Like, I just get this, like, um, this sense, yeah. That he's, like, always sort of pushing Falstaff away a little bit. And Falstaff is always, like, trying to reach and pull him in. Like, there's all these moments mm-hmm. of Falstaff, like, proclaim proclaiming love to Hal and like trying to get Hal to to say something nice to him or whatever. And and it always feels like Hal is like pretty cruel in response.
0: Absolutely. Um and I I think there there was there's something I, I think why I mentioned last time the the need for the the sort of underlying love going on, even if it's not sort of explicitly in the text, is because I remember when when we when we did the play you know, everyone was laughing a ton in rehearsal during the first scene. And then we got to the performance and the first performance there, the audience was kind of like silent. And um, it's a really hard play to get started because you've got immediately, as I think we said last time, this deluge of information and these names of these people we're never going to meet. And it's all very important. But ah, what do we do? And so I, I actually spent some time with my Hal and Falstaff and I said, guys, because what they were doing was wonderful and made me laugh. But I realized that we needed more moments of um, of love between the two of them for the audience to understand the humor, which was interesting because I, I hadn't anticipated that when when we were in rehearsal. And as soon as we made just the tiny adjustment of, you know, like Hal coming in and and instead of, you know, playing with Falstaff's nose as he was asleep he he lay down with him on the table and they had a little spoon and um and then uh, Falstaff sort of woke up and was like oh yeah oh Hal hello and it was like instantly just that tiny little shift made the audience just like completely much more engaged with this because they're like oh so they they're these guys that just goof around a lot but it was it was interesting that they they really didn't find it was like too cruel for them to find funny in unless we put that, that one moment at the top of the scene sort of made it much more explicit that these guys had affection for each other. So I, I totally see what you're saying, Sam. And I, I um, it's a very well, it's, delicate balance to, to find, I think.
3: Well, you it's, it's one of those things, right? Where the text tells you, like, the, it, you have to justify all of the love that Falstaff says that these two men have. And then you also have to justify the, the lack of it in, in Hal's dialogue mm. in- as the play has uh, shown us.
2: Yeah, and, yeah. And I think it also makes the, the, that moment when uh, Falstaff says, banish poor Falstaff and banish the world when Hal says, I do, I will. It makes that moment far more poignant if yeah. there is that love shown between the two of them. Yes, I completely, I think that's one of the
0: most devastating moments in the play. I yes, agree.
2: <laughs> yeah, it breaks my heart.
4: Yeah, you yeah, know, it, it to me, it's has the fami- the relationship has a familiarity of like a brother, kind of a brothers sibling, you know, or, or one mm. of those um, or men who have grown up together and just have that 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 bond that's so strong it can withstand anything, anything you say, anything you do, it's um it's okay. Yeah. Oh,
8: I like that. And and it is. I mean, male love for uh, for another man you know or love between two men is is often something that is like difficult for men to portray and, and, and to to convey to each other um and like definitely in plays and things like that and i think that that's where this is in the context of guys who express their affection for each other by teasing each other mm-hmm. um and so, like it's with it's the subtleties within that um, that both allow them to like ex- give them the the freedom to express their love because it's in a joke, and so it's like okay too. But also the freedom to like jab at each other a, a little bit, and, and for Hal to just sort of like, yeah, exist in both sort of things, um, being mean to Falstaff and, and also loving him. That's
3: I great. also think that Shakespeare is a really good dramatist and knows that in the introduction of a character at the beginning of act two and you're going to have a three-play arc where they have to grow like there there can be a little bit of of immaturity and and prickishness in the character at the top (laughs) figuring their things out because again he's a good dramatist and he knows that he has to have henry five by henry five
0: (laughs) I love that, that's, that's really wonderful. I also think that this, this play sort of historically was quite a runaway success. Like it was so popular during Shakespeare's time. I mean, the, the sort of apocryphal story and who knows if it's, if it's true or not is that Queen Elizabeth just mm-hmm. adored Falstaff and was so fond of him. She sort of commanded uh, Shakespeare to write a play in which he actually falls in love which resulted in The Merry Wives of Windsor which is like as uh, Rodney Cartier of, of Lambda was called it Shakespeare's only sitcom. Um, which is I, I just love that, and and that there is a and it's his only play that's almost entirely in prose and was probably written in about ten days, which is kind yeah. of extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but this was very much a, a, a runaway success and very much I think to do with these you know this is a huge departure from from the scenes of uh, Richard the second and King John and it, it really shows us so much more of the world than most of the history plays. Um, so speaking of more of the world, let's see this hilarious robbery, which uh, in my experience just gives the director and the actors, so, you can just create such a wonderful comedy routine with this robbery, um, as, as we'll see as we read it. <laughs> so in come the rest of the robbers.
2: Dead. So I do against my will.
1: Oh, tis our setter. I know his voice. Bardolph,
2: what news?
6: Casey, Casey, I'm with your wizards. There's money of the king's coming down the hill. Tis going to the king's exchequer.
2: You lie, ye rogue. Tis going to the king's tavern.
5: There's enough to make us all. To be hanged. Sirs, you four shall front them in the narrow
3: lane. Ned Poynes and I will walk lower. If they escape from your encounter, then they
5: light on us.
2: How many be there of them?
5: Uh, some eight, or ten.
2: Boons, will they not rob us? What,
3: a coward, Sir John Paunch?
2: Indeed I am not John of Gaunt, your grandfather, but yet no coward, Hal. Well, we leave that to the proof. No. Sarah, Jack.
1: Thy horse stands behind the hedge. When thou need'st him, there thou shalt find him. Farewell, and stand fast.
2: Now cannot I strike him if I should be hanged. Ned, where are disguises? Here, hard by, stand close. Now, my masters, happy man be his dole, say I. Every man to his business.
8: Come, neighbor. The boys shall lead our horses down the hill. We'll walk a foot a while and ease their legs.
2: And then Jesus bless us. Strike down with them, cut the villains' throats. Ah, horse and caterpillars, bacon fed knaves, they hate us, youth. Down with them, fleece them.
8: Oh, we are undone, both
2: yeah. we and ours forever. Hang ye, gore bellied knaves. Are ye undone? No, ye fat chuffs, I would your store were here. On, bacons, on. What, ye knaves, young men must live. You are grand jurors, are ye? Well, jur ye faith.
3: The thieves have bound the true men. Now could thou and I rob the thieves and go merrily to London? It would be argument for a week, laughter for a month, and a good jest forever.
2: Stand close. I hear them coming. My masters, let us share, and then to horse before day. And the prince and poins be not too errant cowards, there's no equity stirring. There's no more valor in that poins than in a wild duck. Your money. <gasps> Villains! Ah!
3: With much ease. Now, merrily to horse, the thieves are all scattered and possessed with fear so strongly that they dare not meet <laughs> He Each takes his fellow for an officer. Away, good men. Falstaff. Sweats to death and lards the lean earth as he walks along. We're not (laughs) laughing. I should pity him. (laughs) How the fat rogue roared!
0: I amazing. Thank you all so much. um, So, what do we think of this uh, this little band of thieves as they um, plan their their Robbery. I love that they're like afraid of the people they're going to rob. They're like,
2: why they going to rob us. <They're> <laughs> <nervous."> <laughs>
4: yeah. You know, yeah, I,
2: Sam. I envision, <laughs> I, you know, I envision this, this group of men, these robbers just going in, you know, 15 different directions, just yeah. so totally disorganized. It's just <laughs> terrible. Yeah, you
3: well, cause I, this is, this is something that I always like, as a, like time period is so important to me. And, and I wanted to say this during the, 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 the truck stop scene, but violence is such an everyday part of these people's lives in a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend on like a level of unsafety, not even inside of like your own home in a way that you cannot comprehend. And so these moments of the fear of violence that everybody has where you're not quite sure how competent everybody is with the weapon that everybody has attached to them, and that they're holding at all times. It's this like moment of, again, realness that comes through uh, the absurdity of everything. Where of course they're all terrified. Like you could get stabbed at any second world, <laughs> and not know why or wherefore it was coming from. And and so I'm always tickled when people act in, in these heightened plays in a really believable and realistic way, which is like, <gasps> and everybody yeah. runs.
0: Absolutely, yeah, Kelly. I would say
9: it's it's it is hilarious, and it's you know very much like Keystone Cops, or yeah. I think Sam, <laughs> you said the Mechanicals earlier, which are just so delightful in um, some of the comedies. But really, I think it, contextually, it's more like it's a gang. Yeah, you know these are these are two rival gangs against each other, and so while yes, they are, you know, definitely comic elements, there is always that aspect of. You know, if if you think of it as like, you know, the warfare gangs that we see now that are shooting people on the streets, or even if we go somewhere like heightens like the West Side Story gangs, you know, there is constantly elements of danger and that creates a hierarchy. You know, it is its own little kingdom in and of itself. So you have the, the people who are sort of the lackeys to Falstaff in the way that you would see to Henry IV. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, Andrew, and then Coy.
6: Yeah, um, just following on from those thoughts, it's worth noting, and I always need to remind myself of this, how high the stakes are in a situation like this, um, that when you talk about that ever-present danger and that uh, possibility of danger, um, not that just that there is danger there, but at any time someone could pull out a a sharp weapon and stab you, uh, that raises the stakes. And their stakes are also, um, we have to find this money, get this money so that we can eat later or drink a lot or whatever we want to do. Um, And of course, those huge stakes for these people, life and death kinds of stakes, uh, um, increase the potency of the comedy which is Ooh. why it's such a great scene
5: oh i like that yeah koi i just did it, it i find it funny to be talking about the the risk of someone else with a weapon because i think this is what most people outside of america think of america is that <laughs> anyone can just have a gun um and i just really like the casting of mitchell as traveler number one coming around the corner with a bright face to I be mean, like well neighbor like <laughs> I, I don't know for some reason that's perfect <laughs> for me i really like that
6: that's
0: great. I, I also, in terms of violence, there's also the consequence if they're caught. Yeah, I they just wanted hanged. to mention that, that the, the amount of times, even in the, the truck stop scene that people say, Oh, I'll be hanged. Hanging was a very common, was the punishment yeah. for being a thief. Um, and that's, that's, we feel that very strongly from, from uh, the act one scene two, And then here we are in two, one and two, two, we've had a lot of hanging and, Halter uh, imagery, yes, Mitch.
8: Which is a difference between Hal and everybody else in this situation, right? Yes. Like that is probably not a risk for Hal in yes. the same way that it is for everybody else. Which is maybe why he feels so comfortable messing with Falstaff's emotions in this, right? Like really scaring the bejesus out of Falstaff. Because <laughs> um, it, it struck me when you were talking about that, that 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 that's not a part of the equation for Hal.
0: Absolutely. And I think there's, there's something to, uh, to one, the the previous scene when Gadzell's talking about, we've got other people in on this robbery that you can't even imagine, Mr. Chamberlain, um, people that for recreation's sake are taking part in this, right? They, they're not relying on this. And of course he's, he must be referencing how, and that if matters were looked into, for their own credit's sake, make all whole. So essentially Hal here is, is safe, right? Because he's the crown prince and they're not going to hang him for being a thief. But also if everyone else is caught, the assumption on their part is kind of that he'll take care of them.
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Sam. I do also want to point out that in terms of so far our sort of two main Princes Hotspurs and Hal, you have Hotspurs who is generating his money by ransoming other noblemen as noblemen should, where yeah. you have Hal who is planning a double robbery, where <laughs> it's setting up the robbery of some actual citizens, or citizens might be a loose term here, but actual people, and then robbing his friends on top of it to generate his money. So I just think it's really interesting, this dynamic between a sort of are two uh, lead figures that are about to to clash coming forward and where they are in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, the more I think about
8: The more I think about this play, the more I think it's about stealing, right? Yeah. Because like Henry IV, <laughs> the problem according to his, to him is like I stole this crown yeah. and now yeah. I'm having to deal with the consequences.
0: Yeah. But somehow that yeah. yeah. that works better than stealing from, you know, the law-abiding citizens it's really yeah. interesting and mm-hmm. in that like yeah, what I is the that- difference between white color crime
10: <laughs> is yeah, white color crime a crime
7: oh i was <laughs> just saying like i had that thought when it's kind of like the uh, it's in the eye of the beholder like if you steal from the thieves and yeah it's just that layer of like well whoever is in control of the narrative gets to decide who's labeled a thief who's labeled a king who's labeled whatever you know
0: Oh, completely. I think that's 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 a, a wonderful point. And, and, and also, you know, to do with it, so much of these, the disputes between the nobles are about property rights. You know, it's oh. very, um, we can go very Marx with this. This is very much equating, uh, you know, th- there's a wonderful line in Richard II where Bolingbroke says, wherefore was I born? Like, indicating like, there's no reason for me to be born if I don't become the Duke of Lancaster, which literally means I have control over a certain amount of land. And this is what the nobility had at this point, right? This, this wasn't, um, we didn't have a very robust middle class, although it was starting to happen. But that the, 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 the landowners, the entire purpose of them <laughs> is to have control over property. And this is how they, they had their rank. There was really nothing else to it. I mean, it was hereditary landowning. And so there, there is definitely a really interesting um, uh, equation of, you know, what does the king do? The king is basically the big landowner um, and the nobles are, have uh, control over the, the small. The, the, there's an equation of uh, the purpose and the, the job is to just own land and, and control it. So there, there's definitely an, an interesting, who's robbing who, um, who's Zooming who um, going on, I think in, 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 this, in this bit. Um, and I love that, so we've been in prose for the whole act so far. And now we're going to our next scene where we get to see Hotspur again and Hotspur starts in prose, which is really fun. We don't switch to verse until Lady Percy comes in um, although it's interesting to note, I believe all letters in Shakespeare, except for one, are always they're always written in prose. Um, there is one that isn't, and I can't for the life of me recall which letter it is. But. <laughs> anyway, so we've had our, our robbery and most of this act is about the robbery and the consequences of the robbery. But we do get this one little interlude where we get to see um, Hotspur in a domestic scene, not raging in the throne room. <laughs> And see if there's a difference between Hotspur raging in the throne room and Hotspur at home. Mm. Um, Wonderful. Take it away, Genevieve.
10: (laughs) But for my own part, my lord, I could be well contented to be there in respect of the love I bear your house. He could be contented. Why is he not then? In respect of the love he bears our house, (laughs) he shows this, (laughs) he shows in this. He loves it. his own barn better than he loves our house let me see some more the purpose you to undertake is dangerous why that's certain Tis dangerous to take a cold sleep drink i tell you my lord fool out of this nettled danger we pluck this flower safety the purpose you undertake is dangerous the friends you have named uncertain the time itself unsorted And your whole plot too light for the counterpoise of so great an opposition? Say you so, say you so. I say unto you again, you are a shallow, cowardly hind. You lie, what a lack brain is this? By the Lord, our plot is a good plot as ever was laid. Our friends true and constant, a good plot, good friends, and full of expectation, an excellent plot. Very good friends, what a frosty-spirited rogue is this? Why, my Lord of York commends the plot and the general course of the action. Zones, if I were now by this rascal, I could brain him with his lady's fan. Is there not my father, my uncle, and myself? Lord Edmund Mortimer, my Lord of York, and Owen Glendower? Is, Is there not besides the Douglas? Have I not all their letters to meet me in arms by the ninth of next month? And are they not some of them set forward already? What a pagan rascal is this, an infidel? You shall see now, in very sincerity of fear and cold heart will he to the king and lay open all our proceedings. Oh, I could divide myself and go to the buffets for moving such a dish of skim milk with so honorable an action, hang him. Let him tell the king. We are prepared. I will set forward tonight. How now, Kate? I must leave you within these two hours.
7: Oh, my good lord, why are you thus alone? For what offense have I this fortnight been a banished woman from my Harry's bed? Tell me, sweet lord, what is is that takes from thee thy stomach pleasure and thy golden sleep? Why dost thou bend thine eyes upon the earth and start so often when thou sittest alone? Why hast thou lost the fresh blood in thy cheeks, And given my treasures and my rights of thee To thick-eyed musings and cursed melancholy? If thy faint slumbers I by thee have watched, And heard thee murmur tales of iron wars, Speak terms of manage to thy bounding steed, Cry courage to the field, And thou hast taught to sallies and retires, Of trenches, tents, of palisados, frontiers, parapets, Of basilics, of cannon, culverin, Of prisoners' ransom, and of soldiers slain, and all the currents of a heady fight. Thy spirit within thee hath been so at war, and thus hath so bestirred thee in thy sleep, that beads of sweat hath stood upon thy brow, like bubbles in a late-disturbed stream. And in thy face strange motions have appeared, such as we see when men restrain their breath on some great sudden heft. Oh, what portents are these? Some heavy business hath my lord in hand, and I must know it, else he loves me not.
10: What, ho? Is Gillam's with the packet gone?
0: wonderful uh both of you wow I didn't okay. realize I was muted I think
1: that oh. might be me but
0: oh yeah let me see. uh yes yes wonderful but let's pause here and just um wow okay two very interesting different characters going on in this scene <laughs> um just before before I ask uh Genevieve and, and Britt questions about this I, I just wanted to point out that my gosh is Lady Percy an army wife like she speaks more about the language and the she has more vocabulary and specifics about war than any other character in any of the plays. It's kind of extraordinary. It's like all of these things she's talking about different types of canon. She clearly knows what's up. I mean, this, this is a woman who's grown up being in a family of um, a lot of warriors. Uh, so yeah, what are your impressions of, of this character with this wonderful speech, Britt?
7: Well, yeah, I I think that, I mean, it's such a juxtaposition to, you know, the speech prior, which is all over the place. And she comes in very sort of even keel and, and almost placating in a way, you know, Um, and it seems like she's, yeah, not only has the knowledge of it, but also has some like emotional awareness. It's like, she's talking about this PTSD almost, you know, like the, the sweat upon the brow and waking up in the middle of the night and all that. And yeah, I just, I, I sit here and I think like, what must it be like to be a woman who, you know, much like, you know, World War One or something, when you're off writing letters, it's like you're so absent from the action of it, or you have no control over it, and yet it is all-encompassing. It's your life, literally. You are just kind of there to produce more offspring or to, you know, forge alliances between two households and stuff like that, so... Yeah, just a I guess a typical you know strong woman who has her head on correctly and um, is trying to she can't have the same sort of like you can see why the two of them I suppose are a good couple because they are both strong in their own way but she can't have the same strength that he does it's I almost wonder what she would be like if she had been born a man because she seems like she has the same gumption and less of these sort of um, you know slashing all over the place for lack of a, a, a better term you know yes yeah, lobbing woo <laughs> but but yeah. I guess that's where I'm at with it <laughs> so Wonderful. far and yeah like you said that I really liked how you said oh yeah look if she knows all of these terminologies and stuff like that she's Shakespeare is making it clear like she's not just talking out of nowhere she she has yeah. a very good awareness of not only what's going on in war but it seems like better than the men the you know psychological and emotional effects of that
10: yeah she's Absolutely. definitely she's definitely a wife who Ooh, they I think that speech even before I um before Hotspur responds to this speech by ignoring her I think it just demonstrates like he talks to his wife a lot like you know because they could have a marriage where they're pretty absent from each other I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of soldier like never hung out with his wife but the fact that she's so involved and aware tells me that they have like a a, a deep r- rapport with each other um and also it's it's such a beautifully I think it's such a sad speech of like your pain affects me too because I'm your partner like you can't sleep and that also I see that I and I don't know I think it's it's interesting that this is the first character we meet that kind of like point, pokes at him in a in a way that's less like everybody else is like oh let him freak out and she's the first
8: person <laughs> who's like
10: I see you dude I see you.
0: Yeah absolutely Mitch
8: yeah, can I just point out about that sleeping thing? Uh, one thing I noticed for the first time hearing you do this, Britt, was, so she says, for what offense have I this fortnight been a banished woman from my Harry's bed? So he said, no, like you go sleep in your room. I'm going to sleep in mine. And then she says, in thy faint slumbers, I by thee have watched and heard you do all these things. So she's been, I think I think we're to take these both these things literally. She's been going into his room then and like watching over him as he sleeps, uh, which <laughs> I think sort of squares with the type of thing that you're describing about, you know, like she's, she's a doer, right? Like, yeah.
7: yeah. You think about like having all of this desire for action, but no capacity to do so. Yeah. Maybe I'd be up at three in the three yeah. morning, three in the morning, you know, just thinking thoughts and being like, almost almost like hyper-managing or just kind of, in- I'm sure she's the kind of woman who wants to anticipate what he's doing. Like, oh, he's scratching his head this way in the morning. I know that's usually how he starts his day off and by, you know, noon, he's going to want to be killing a bunch of people. You know, I got to yes. rein him in, you know, like <laughs> just always, yeah, ready to, to react almost, you know?
0: Absolutely.
3: Yeah, Sam. Um, I, I, I definitely am um, colored by uh, the only time I've ever seen this play or interacted with this play and seeing it. But I do remember the Lady Percy of that production being just as fiery and just as like sort of in command of her presence as Hotspurs was. And what I think is fascinating, uh, touching on what uh, Mitchell said, that the first third of this whole speech ends in question marks, right? It's question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. And that first third is all her being like, why, why, why aren't, why aren't we having sex? (laughs) (laughs) Like really that whole first third of the speech is just question after question after question of why aren't we, you're kicking me out of my bed. Like you're kicking us out of the bed. All of this energy that you're going into being kind of melancholy could be being used somewhere else. And so I, I have a sense of this like the 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 Percy like the Hotspur family just exactly seems like everything they're warriors they want to put the bloodline on like this seems really actually healthy to me in like a weird way in a way that <laughs> a lot of other uh sometimes shakespearean marriages don't seem very healthy sometimes um but I just really do think that that first whole third of that speech is all question marks and it is all about their bedroom
0: mm very nice so, yes coy
5: yeah if If my partner was screaming courage to the field in their sleep, I don't know if I'd just be like totally chilled out and be like, you know, when you were talking in your sleep, like there's an element of of her being okay with all that as well. Like her warrior husband just like screaming and tossing and crying and sweating in his sleep and her, instead of being worried about it, she's like, yeah, I watched you. You're doing this. Like it just... yeah, having, having everyone brought it up, it was just, I hadn't thought about that. I was like, it's kind of She's scary. she
3: when she comes back. That's also important, as, as was pointed out before.
4: Yeah, Lynn. Yeah, and I, I think what the point is kind of tying all of this together is that um, this time he's not sharing the information with her. Yeah. They're not talking about it. And then later, you know, he's going to say, I'm not going to talk to you because I know you'll you will spread the word around a little bit you know so yeah. i think you know i think that that's like what's different about it this time and um and because she is so knowledgeable she knows about war he taught they talk about it all the time it seems and um it seems like they they have a lusty relationship you know in their the scenes that they're the scene that they have and uh and the, what's different is now, um, he's 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 just not sharing it with her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say I
8: read the the treasure, my treasures and my rights of thee. So she says, and given my treasures and my rights of thee to thick-eyed musing and cursed melancholy, I, I read that as the information, right? The talking, which, which I think supports what Genevieve was saying about their they have a relationship. Where they do talk, I read that as as the information and and what's bothering him rather than uh, sex. Um, but I, I don't know if oh, if people agree think. on that.
7: Yeah, I feel like it go either way.
8: I mean, I think both are in the text,
3: and I think that both are meant to be in the text. Mm. But it's a lot of body talk for me right before that last line, which is why. And I again, I'm totally also I that was an actor's choice and a production choice, and the thing that I saw, but when um, uh, uh, thy stomach, it's all of this bodily stuff. Um, and why has thou lost the fl- uh, fresh blood in thy cheek and given my treasures and my rights of thee to thick-eyed musing and cursed melancholy? I, I think that Shakespeare likes to hold both there. I think that, right? Try to keep both alive is the most <laughs> <Yeah.
4: place> Often.
10: <laughs> uh, I also think that the, the speech goes from like, why aren't you giving me sex to uh, actually much more complicated thing which is like and also like she has to continue speaking and so she goes from like this is like easier to talk about to these are the harder things to talk about maybe or these yeah. are the and I so I think it's kind of like what you point out Mitchell like that line maybe is the moment where she's kind of holding both and then she switches into like or at least it's interesting to think just right now that like oh yeah the the reason she keeps talking is because that's not enough to just say, why aren't you having sex with me? And and she's saying, and also, why aren't you talking to me? And also, why are you having nightmares? And also, you know, why are you sweating? And like, she points out that his body isn't acting the way it normally does. And he's such a body person that that she's really kind of getting, trying to get at the thing to get him to talk because he is so non-communicative. I, I also love that this speech ends with such an ultimatum. I must know it else he loves me not, it's like, yeah this is a woman at the end of her rope with a very, very headstrong, stubborn man who, yeah. who like knows that man very well.
2: I saw that as well, yeah. Kelly, yeah. At the end. I think what's interesting, it, you know, we've
9: you've talked about her being a military wife and, and there obviously is this great love between them, but this is also a battle. Mm. You know, the scene is also a battle. It's just a different kind of battle. And it's a battle maybe that's from the perspective of like what women are allowed to battle for and about, and how they are able to do it. You know, she can't go up to him with a sword and be like, Why are you not doing this? So she has to battle him with her thoughts and words. And but it is combative, she's not backing down from you know, she's pursuing him. And it, it is very much like you could see this. Uh, it probably has a lot of times in drama schools been done as a fight scene. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that there's not love behind
0: it, yeah. Oh, I like absolutely. what somebody
7: said about how, yeah, it's like she starts it off by talking about something that's safe and comfortable and within her realm to speak upon, which is like, hey, had noticed you in my bed for a bit The sexy time is kind of <laughs> less. And each, like Gilroy said, it's a question. It's a question. She's leaving it open, ready for him. And then it's like, okay, well, if you're not really going to address that, then we've got an even bigger issue in the room and let's just go all in for it. Because I have a sense, I feel you, you know, Nancy, I feel like you're about to leave. And this might be my opportunity to be like, look, if it's reached the point where you don't want to talk to me about it. Then it is something troubling because, yeah, usually if you do open up to me, and this is something you don't want to open up to me, then deep down you're struggling with something that you won't acknowledge within yourself, or you certainly won't address with me.
0: Absolutely, I think I think you're that's right on the money, Brit. And I think I think those shifts um, really beautifully kind of work in terms of just like, <laughs> you know, the sort of actor analysis as as change in tactics. Um, those shifts in the speech, it's like, well, I, I pursued this. This Avenue for a bit, and this isn't working so i'm gonna i'm gonna 'm gonna change and um I remember working with the 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 actress who was playing um lady Percy and she said well it's interesting that I by thee have watched is almost like a way of getting him to stop from walking away like I know what's going on like she's sharing this this it's it's like a, a reveal that I know that you haven't been sleeping well, and she probably hasn't so th- there's something she's upping the stakes. And, and as you say, uh, Genevieve, that she, his response is to <laughs> immediately call someone else into their space. Um, I would like to highly just do a shout out to Else Wentz's amazing play, Courage to the Field, which is a, a, a sort of rewrite of King Henry IV part one from the perspective of the servants and the women. Um, and it is an extraordinary play. A lot of it is written in, um, in Iambic Pentameter and it's just, please do check it out. Um, It's really fun. It's a huge development of uh, this servant that comes in as like a very big character and then Lady Percy, like most of it is about Francis and the servants to the Hotspur family and and Lady Percy. So it's it's I highly recommend it. I went and saw it twice when it was.
10: Born. That's a great play. It's also this scene reminds me a lot of Brutus in Caesar with his wife yes. and like the classic. Um, if we listened to women, we wouldn't all die. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> moral <laughs> that I always take away from both of these scenes: like yes. if you listen to your wife,
0: mm, you maybe wouldn't it's have.
5: True. Died. <laughs> <laughs> yes, coy. Yeah, I think I'm just looking at this because a lot of her talking about the the dreams I would initially often associated with PTSD stuff, but I mm. think, um, and especially historically from my weird knowledge is I don't think PTSD really was a thing in this era, the way that we think of it. Um, and what she's talking about, I think it is kind of interesting to think of the timing of why it's an issue and what she's talking about in that it's not that he's constantly talking in his sleep, it's that just these past two weeks with the beginning of, assumedly, this um, uh, coup that he's planning. And so it's this, like, you know, you always used to go off and kill people and you were fine and slept really well and we had sex. <laughs> so, like, what's changed, honey? Yeah. Why is it a problem now?
4: <laughs> yeah, you know? but- I,
5: and that's kind of a really interesting, like, underlying part to it, that... It's he he's done this his whole life. We know he everyone knows he's a warrior, but it's only these past fortnight that all of a sudden he's sweating in his sleep and he's acting like there's this big problem.
8: And I think I think that's actually really important to this scene, because I think I mean it's actually getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But I think that Hotspur does not want her to know what's about to happen.
4: Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's not- a
8: big motivation. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Len.
4: Yeah. And he's not talking to her. You know, whereas before, I mean, she knows all these terms. She knows what you know, the sallies are, and the you know, she knows all the purpose of everything. Um, but this time, he's just not sharing. And and maybe her.
2: maybe that's a way to keep keep her safe. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
8: And and yeah. And and. Does he trust her to know it? Yeah. Is okay. it to keep her safe? Does he trust her to know yeah. it? I mean, he's got some pretty horrible lines coming up <laughs> about women in a few minutes.
10: But, but, but it's horrible and I hate it. But I also think it's the same as like Hamlet and Ophelia being like, oh, I'm yeah. going to insult you to the point where you stop pushing me. Like, I am yeah. mm-hmm. i don't believe that either of those characters, I don't believe Hotspur or Hamlet like truly believes these things about women. I just like have to not believe that if we're going to do it today. It's but, like another um,
8: tactic you're saying? Yeah,
10: I think so. Because I yeah. think it's it's going like it's that classic like if you have this information your life is in in danger and I can't it's the spider-man or like superhero thing like I can't let you you know like you can't know (laughs) because so I don't know I just think about that a lot too that they're both just desperately and it's interesting that it's a desperate choice to insult the 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 gender of his wife because I think that shows that that's not how he actually feels like he doesn't actually Mm -hmm. think well you're a woman you don't get it I mean maybe on some level he does but I don't think he thinks that at the front of his
3: brain. Well, in terms of just like the the again, as everybody stated, she knows her weapon. Like she is clearly a very switched on, very plugged into her husband's life woman. And I just went through it. It's that whole speech is technically 10 sentence long. Seven yeah. of the sentences are questions.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Oh, and, and and there's one long sentence, but otherwise, it is just she is just drilling down in on him his entire monologue in that way and 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 I think that what's like different if you compare it to the Hamlet thing um this is this is a woman who is used to being on the inside of her husband's head whereas Hamlet I think has always been kind of this like (laughs) vagary that nobody can get in and so the difference there is like the desire to wanting to be to know somebody and being shut out and this is knowing somebody intimately and being shut out mm, which yeah, are absolutely. very different um um kinds of rejection to me
0: yeah absolutely and I think um let's get back into the into the text we've got what's really interesting to me just technically is sometimes in 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 the editions of this play we stay in verse for the rest of the the scene which is tricky to make some of these lines into verse in the folio Hotspur switches back into prose at this point as almost like a rejection of the actual form of language that she's speaking in and we don't get back to verse until away away you trifler which is in another page or so so Mm -hmm. let's um (laughs) let's uh, go into this this bit with our, our wonderful servant who I will now always think of as his name is William um, from from <laughs> elsewhere's play, um, and 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 that Lady Percy also has a servant named Anne. Um, seriously, it's a phenomenal play. <laughs> what ho!
1: Is Gillum's with the packet gone? He is, my lord. An hour ago, hath Butler brought those horses from the sheriff? One horse, my lord. He brought even now.
10: What horse? Ron? Cropier is it not? It is, my lord. That roan shall be my throne. Well, I will back him straight. Oh, Esperance! Bid Butler lead him forth into the park.
7: But hear you, my lord.
10: What sayest thou, my lady?
7: What is it carries you away?
10: Why, my horse, my love, my horse.
7: Out, you mad-headed ape! A weasel hath not such a deal of spleen as you are tossed with. In faith, I'll know your business, Harry, that I will. I fear my brother Mortimer doth stir about his title, and hath sent for you to line his enterprise. But if
10: you go— So far afoot, I shall be weary, love.
7: Come, come, you parakito, answer me directly into this question that I ask. In faith, I'll break thy little finger, Harry, and if thou wilt not tell me all things true.
10: Away, away, you trifler! love, I love thee not. I care not for thee, Kate. This is no world to play with mammoths and to tilt with lips. We must have bloody noses and cracked crowns and pass them current too. Gods meet my horse! What sayest thou, Kate? What wouldst thou have with me? Do you not love me?
7: Do you not indeed? Well, do not then, for since you love me not, I will not love myself. Do you not love me? Nay, tell me if you speak in jest or no.
10: Come, wilt thou see me ride? And when I am a horseback, I will swear I love thee infinitely. But hark you, Kate, I must not have you henceforth question me whither I go, nor reason whereabout. Whither I must, I must. And to conclude, this evening must I leave you. Gentle Kate, I know you wise, but yet no farther wise than Harry Percy's wife. Constant you are, but yet a woman. And for secrecy no lady closer, For I well believe thou wilt not utter What thou dost not know. And so far will I trust thee, gentle Kate. How so far? Not an inch further, but hark you, Kate. Whither I go, thither shall you go too. Today will I set forth, tomorrow you. Will this content you, Kate?
7: It must a force.
0: Wow. Amazing.
7: Yeah. You know, I got to say him being like, you know, but hark you, Kate, whither I go thither, you shall go too. It's like, yeah, no shit, Charlotte. That's why I'm talking
2: <laughs> this conversation because I don't have any agency and I'm going where you're going and I don't like where we're headed here. <laughs> I, I I can't help but think as I was listening to um, that just exchange, okay, away you trifler and Lady Percy. I could not help but think um that they may be teasing each other it's in you know a way you it tr- just you're trifling it could be you know it could be um just kind of teasing
10: mhm yeah and and like that they do kind of banter maybe sometimes yeah, that they yeah. don't like each other
3: yeah yeah but Oh,
10: so go ahead. Oh, no, I I guess I was just going to say, I wondered reading through it. I think Brittany, you're so right that she's like, I've known this whole time that I'm coming with you. (laughs) You just needed to figure it out. And like, I wonder reading for Hotspur, like I I think it's a fun choice to decide whether he makes this decision in the scene, whether this is something he was already thinking about, maybe this would have to happen. Or if it's like, I mean, I think she convinces him, but it's a great question of like, her convincing him of something she already knew was going to happen I don't know there's something about the dynamic of like she doesn't have the power to say I'm coming with you but she gets him to say what she's like yeah duh (laughs) it
7: it seems like as much as that speech sort of is supposed to undercut her it also shows just how much like power or capacity he is aware that his wife has because he says um I will believe thou wilt not utter what thou dost not know which is like once I leave this place, lady, I don't want you to start chirping everywhere and trying to find answers <laughs> or like organizing things for yourself. Like let it just rest woman, you know? Cause he knows that her brain is still going to be sitting, thinking about it. It's not like he's going to head off and she's like, well, I guess that's just that, you know?
3: I, I have a really hard time of reading this as anything, but a couple that like really loves each other. That's having like a real heart. Oh, yeah. In this one moment, because I just love the fact that she's like, If you do not give me an honest answer, I will break your goddamn finger.
4: <laughs> like, it's such an finger? awesome, like, is it a Northern finger?
5: Warrior is it, is it a finger? Like is, it a finger? Like, is it a finger? Or <laughs> is it
4: a, yeah, I like, is it <laughs> it a finger? Yeah. it's a But, like, you know, it's is there. And then I just love,
3: Come, wilt thou see me ride? And when I'm on my goddamn horse, I'll tell you that I love you, babe, but, like, I'm trying to go to war now yeah. little moments because like they are every couple packing up a car like <laughs> you know what I mean it's it is this real underneath all of it um and and I think that there's there is a way to play it where you can totally make it there is genuine concern but there's a sauciness to all of it oh yeah um, I love them as a couple so
8: much I really <laughs> Yeah. This feels to me like another dance. Oh, sorry, Ari. I oh, no, mean- no. <laughs> I was
0: I was just laughing. Please please go I, ahead, Mitch. <laughs> well,
8: this feels like another one of those dances. I totally agree. I think this is like a very um intimate couple in all senses of of that word or she wouldn't feel comfortable talking to him the way she does. Um this feels to me like another dance of her trying to get that intimacy back in this moment and him mm while loving her and wanting that relationship trying to keep her a little bit at arms length and i think it is that information he doesn't want to give her the information that she accurately guessed yes <laughs> or you exactly. know she knows what's going on she was like oh god you're going to try to overthrow the king <laughs> right and i think he's he's trying desperately to keep her at a little bit of arms length so that he doesn't give her that information um but i agree yeah. that's in the context of a really intimate relationship
10: this time through i was struck by saying i know you wise but yet no farther wise than harry percy's wife i i feel like she he's reminding her like you have a title so you need to act the part and harry percy's wife doesn't know that there's a rebellion and she needs to not know like so i need you to be that person um and you and i like intimately obviously you can read my mind but, like, that, I just thought that was an interesting word I, I choice. I was struck by the same thing.
7: It felt like, look, we have strong minds together, but if anyone ultimately gets to decide, reminder, you're the wife here, and I'm the decision <laughs> holder, so fall in line, because I love you toots, but we gotta go. It's like a
5: mob family.
7: <laughs> or almost yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where maybe you know, I'm struck by the fact that he doesn't, yeah, want to discuss it with her. You know, it goes to show, like, deep down, he's having some reservations, because otherwise, he'd be open to the criticism, but he probably already knows what she's gonna say and it doesn't agree with what he wants to do, and therefore, like grab the horse and let's go, you know. He's also mm-hmm. trying to
3: protect her from treason. If mm-hmm. she knows what's going on, she there is a chance that if the rebellion goes poorly, she will not be hung. If she knows what's going on and but we he,
7: but he knows she knows he he's you know but, what I mean. But it's not about
3: what they in their psychic husbandry and wifery, know what's going on. <laughs> brains, it's he doesn't about con- what is con- the confess. official narrative that the Crown knows. And it's like the mob wives. I'm married to a mob boss. I know he's doing mob shit. But as long as I don't technically know anything. He's in
5: waste management.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I can I can get on. And so I do think that there is the, the, the protection element here is That's definitely. That's what I
2: said. Keeping her safe.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, yeah. Well, which is, I wonder, think, what he's saying when he says I'm wondering about are Harry Percy's wife. I'm wondering, oh, it's my Canadian tomorrow. Um, I'm wondering <laughs> if, is it a literal or a figurative tomorrow? <laughs> um, <laughs> is Because like, cause I, I think I'd originally written it like, yeah, okay, I'm leaving now and I guess like I'll change my mind um, and you can come tomorrow. But is he also kind of saying like, I'm going to do this thing, which we're not talking about. And if I can get the thing done, you'll be with me in the thing. But is it like... Does tomorrow m- mean more a future event as opposed to 24 hours from now? Oh, interesting.
10: Mm. I well, mean, I, think... I read it pretty literally. My instinct yeah. is like, she's going to get on the horse tomorrow. And, right. and it's, I, I don't know. I just, it feels like he's saying he's giving permission because he needs to feel like he's giving permission, but because right. he kind of knows she's about to get on the horse anyway. So yeah, it's, it's a way of being like, you can come tomorrow. Because
5: I said so. gonna go right, and I, and I that's when I when I've read it before, I felt the same. It's thinking about it though, like he's going to go fight a war, right? Like she can't just be joining that necessarily, or is she? But they're
0: they're about to go, and all the rebels are going to meet up. Um, I think it's also just important to realize again, family drama. Uh, Lady Percy is the king's first cousin uh, <laughs> once removed as well, so she is also incredibly. A part of this this royal family, she her grandfather was uh, was the brother of uh, of Henry's father, so they're all coming from this this same royal family. So again, it's like people knew each other, you know. Um, so it's very personal, and and to me that it almost like takes away from the whole idea of a civil war, and, and this becomes it's, it becomes a a, a plot. Um, to essentially Hotspur is fighting to put his 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 brother-in-law on the throne and give his wife more power in this kind of interesting interesting way Um, but I just thought that was that was worth noting that that she is actually directly related to the king um as well wonderful so we have this this amazing uh um marriage it's the only marriage we get to see in this in this play. I think, yeah, very similar to uh, Brutus and Portia in Julius Caesar or Caesar and Calpurnia in Julius Caesar. (laughs) Um, But there's all of these, you're so right, Genevieve. It's like, if these men had listened to their wives they would probably all be alive by the end of the play. Um, And you wouldn't have a play. You wouldn't have a play.